Okay, I pressed record also. Very good. Then we are back with Beyond the Block. Me and Derek are going remote today. Derek is somewhere we are back. in Western Mass, and I am still in Boston by my lonesome. So we're going to try to do this episode remote. I uh, might have a couple of call drops or interruptions, but we're going to try to keep that to a minimum and obviously handle all that stuff in editing. But we are glad that you guys could join us for another episode of Beyond the Block. And there are a couple of things that we definitely want to have on the docket today. So, uh, Derek, what say ye that we jump right into this news? Sure, let's jump into the news. Excellent. Okay, so the first big thing, I think the big story this week was Elder Nelson is going to be speaking at the NAACP National Convention. I believe that's this Sunday. So if you haven't heard, the church struck up a partnership with the NAACP to ends that we're not entirely sure of, but the story they released, um, or sorry, the, the meeting that happened a few months ago, or I guess about this time last year, there was a call for racial and ethnic harmony and an end to prejudice. So I assume that whatever this meeting is, is going to be in that vein. And a couple months after that initial meeting that happened last year, uh, the church announced that our self-reliance program would partner with NAACP chapters all around the country to provide uh, education and employment training. And so far, that seems to be a good direction. But I seriously wonder what the church is going to do to the end of racial harmony and racial justice. And that's just looking back on the B1 conference where my skepticism is coming from. Like I know there were a lot of things the legacy committee wanted to include in the B1 conference, but they ended up getting scrapped for whatever reason. And uh, that event also didn't really feel like it was for us as black people. It it felt like we were used as props by the leaders to tell a part of our story as a way of accentuating the positive while not really acknowledging the shortcomings. And uh, President Oaks's words didn't really help with that. I feel like if the if the whole B1 conference happened without Elder Oaks's words, it would have been a lot better. But um, understand, I'm just coming in to this particular Sunday event, whatever this convention is, with a little bit of skepticism. Like, I want to be hopeful, but, you know, between the B1 conference and um, Elder Christofferson's appearance at the NAACP Unity Luncheon, I am keeping my expectations low. What do you think, Derek? Okay, so in terms of expectations, I think that this would be a great uh, arena for the church and its leadership and its membership to show some humility and accountability because we can't pretend that we've been perfect or that we are perfect on this issue, um, but we can say, look, uh, we want we, we need to, to be humble and we need to reach out um, and make amends and also be accountable to not just black members within our church, but black members throughout uh, the world. Um, And especially, I think, in the U.S., where we as a church, we could have been on the right side of the civil rights movement, but we weren't. Um, uh, We could have been marching in Selma. We could have been 
on the front lines of all the all these things, but we weren't, and and we have a chance now to be accountable to the to these to the populations that we have uh, mistreated. Now I don't know what President Nelson's going to do if he's going to take that approach. My assumption is that he's going to try to walk a very delicate balance of not saying anything that will make the church look bad <laughs> and trying to say things that will make the church look good. And that may not be the most long-term uh, strategic option. It may give you some gains in the short term, um, like the gains of, of not giving the ex-Mormons more ammunition, of uh, you know the, them being able to point to what we did wrong. But, but the long-term gains of honesty and integrity are un- uh, unmatched, I think, and we should do do what we can to make things right and and get off on the right foot and make amends and and do what's right. I agree. I agree. Do you think that's what Elder Christofferson was trying to do last year at the uh, Unity Luncheon? Because he spent a lot of time talking about LGBTQ issues and religious freedom, and it seemed to be I don't know. Like my theory is. There's a bit of there's a bit of bridge building being attempted there because black churches are still relatively homophobic and perhaps Elder Christofferson was trying to let folks know what we got in common. I, I don't know. Just the whole thing seemed like a big deflection and a rather poor attempt at bridge building. I don't know if you got any thoughts on that. Yeah, I listened to the to the same thing and it was just so confusing because um it seemed like he wanted to talk about what he needed to say rather than what uh, what what people at this luncheon would have needed to hear. I have no idea. He, he spent almost all the time talking about this alleged balance between religious freedom and LGBT rights. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. And I think that was a very wasted opportunity. He could have built bridges in a very real way with members of the, the black community in this country, and uh, and he, he didn't. I'm not sure exactly what that was about. Yeah, me neither, me neither. I don't really have anything else for this particular story other than simply hoping for the best, but keeping my expectations low, just like I did for the B1 conference last year. Do you have any other thoughts about uh, this Saturday or this Sunday's meeting with the NAACP? Yeah, my my question is: We've talked about the word pinkwashing, which is where either governments or corporations with other problem problematic policies try to paste over that with this. Oh, look! But we're pro pro queer, so let's put rainbows all over everything, and then we'll you'll forget about this unjust thing that we did over here. <laughs> now, I'm wondering to what extent is is there an equivalent? Uh, in terms of the black community, like, oh, we've messed up here, but let's put this this uh, sort of front on of like, oh, like, let's show everyone that we're talking to the NAACP and that's going to make us look not racist. Well, you know, Elder Nelson, or sorry, President Nelson is probably going to bring at least a couple of brothers with him, like at least one or two members of the 70, because I know the B1 conference Every black general authority and stake president was there. Uh, you know, they had Brother Ahmed, Brother Dub Elder Dubay, Elder Satati, like everybody was there. So I, I don't know if he's going to 
uh-huh. bring anybody yeah. with him like that this time around. But I, I do fear that as well. That's simply the optics of the church having a partnership as well as perhaps President Nelson bringing actual black authorities with him may send the wrong message or at least a message that we're not fully reflected yet. Right, and I don't think that they're on purpose trying to be deceptive, the leaders of the church. I genuinely think they're trying to build bridges and they're trying to do what they think is best. I just don't think that they have done all the work necessary to build bridges with the community to know what the right steps are at this point. Um, So it ends up looking the way it does. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. Well, let's, uh, again, let's just, uh, I'm going to try to hope for the best and see if there is, yeah, I don't know. I I, I got really low expectations for this meeting, but I, I totally agree with you, Derek. I just really hope that in this they are at the very least committed to doing the work of proper bridge building and they reach into their own membership, members of that community, to uh, to get some information to, and to seek some wisdom on how exactly would be best to do that. Yeah. Now, one last question for you. What To what extent do you think this is a, a change? Because I can't imagine President Ezra Taft Benson meeting with the NAACP. No, no. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners are, f- are familiar with his views about civil rights, <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't, yeah, this, this, uh, I think this would uh, come to, as a surprise to, to President Benson. Can I um, tell you a story, Derek? And, and, and President, Sure. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's, it's really short. But um, in this, uh, in, in this uh, LDS forum that you and I are a part of, somebody posted a picture of themselves with Ezra Tef Benson and in essence asked if we can see the similarities. And this particular, <laughs> this particular guy doesn't have the most enlightened views on race. And I almost commented like, what are you talking about? The, 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 the hatred of civil rights and of uh, black liberation or the glasses. Like, I wasn't entirely sure, but I almost <laughs> went there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to bring out the irony that in many ways, Joseph Smith was a civil rights leader, especially in mm. terms of freedom of religion, not, not just for Latter-day Saints, but for all religions uh, and for the freedom of speech as well. Uh, because of how his people were so persecuted, he really fought taking it all the way up to the president of the U.S. Um, and appealed to everyone to say, hey, look, we've got to to not be mistreated based on these core um, rights that we have. And we should continue that legacy today. Then uh, let's go ahead and move on to the uh, next story. Uh, this one came out just a couple, just like a day or two ago. But this is the church announcing a replacement for the Boy Scouts personal progress. And they're calling it children and youth. Now, I'm, I'm trying to understand what the goal exactly of this new initiative is and what I've gleaned from it was to, like this is a quote from one of the articles I read, it was to deepen conversion through gospel learning, personal development, and service and activities. So it seems to be based on the, uh, the church's new home-centered and emphasized church-supported learning, and that's led to some changes which is a uh, which is the new curriculum the come follow me for Sunday school and other classes for family gospel study and in place of uh, the Sunday meetings 
And uh, to me, it's an interesting wording of the goal mm-hmm. when the initial exodus from the scouting program came amid the Boy Scouts of America's increasingly tolerant stance on gay and transgender men and boys in the Scouts. But the church did say that they aren't making any changes because of that. They, they simply said that the teen programs like, like Varsity and, and Venturing are hard to implement in the church. So to me, that just sounds like it, it sounds like it's code for we need something that will better prepare our young men to serve missions. And I got to admit that both varsity and venturing don't really seem to be doing that job. I think that the biggest thrust and I will give the church credit mm-hmm. for this, the, the thrust, the biggest thrust of the church with regards to the Boy Scouts is to uh, just provide a better opportunity for uh, young men to spiritually grow and uh, head more towards or be more prepared to serve missions as a result Mm. of that program. And obviously it would be cool to integrate the, the uh, programs between the young men and the young women with regard to progress, because those are pretty gender neutral. And uh, I like that idea. I like that idea. So we'll, we'll we'll see how successful that is. It's supposed to roll out in uh, January, 2020 in, in terms of the actual uh, beginning of the program, but as early as September, leaders are going to start getting changed. They're going to release, they're going to start getting manuals, and basically everybody who's working on a personal progress or a duty to God award has to have that finished by the end of the year if they want it to count. There's a number of changes there, and I I think that's that you're right to bring up the points about uh, preparing for missions. I think for me, preparing for Lifelong discipleship is an important goal because many of our young people aren't prepared for um, various concerns, uh, faith crisis issues, um, uh, challenging material that they may come across. I think the the situation for our youth is very different than than 30 years ago now that so much information um, and content from all perspectives uh, around our church is, is available at the click of a button. So that's that's something we have to wrestle with. Uh, many of our young people are leaving the church, um, and I think that's, that's something to, to take into account. Another thing that I think is uh, an important step is the uh, how it will equalize things in two areas. One we had a in the United States a very big sort of discrepancy between the experience of young men and young women are in our church. That the young men had this really cool thing, the, the Boy Scouts, and I'm sure that the uh, what the young women did is is supposed to be cool as well. I just don't think that the same amount of resources, uh, emphasis, and time and and everything. Uh, got there for the young women as well. So this will equalize things there. Similarly, it will equalize the experience within the United States and with other countries because the BSA, the Boy Scouts of America, was something that the church did only in the United States, and they did other stuff in other countries. I'm not even sure what they did in other countries. But now um, people of all genders and all, um, all, all countries may have a more... Uh, egalitarian experience here and I think that's for the best although I just want to add that that I know that there's this new um, 
emphasis on preparation and inoculation among the uh, seminary and institute curriculum. And I think that whatever the uh, whatever this new replacement for scouting and personal progress is, it hopefully will will align with those things and prepare people for like how do I deal with I think for a lot of our young people, ironically, is the LGBT issue. Um, and many of our young people would would are leaving the church over this issue because they uh, they don't see room for their their LGBT siblings, family members, and friends, and they also don't want to be part of a church that's perceived by the world as homophobic. Right. So they so they leave, and I think we should uh, hopefully uh, figure out ways of retaining our young people, and not just retaining them for the purpose of numbers, but retaining them for the purposes of look, we are supposed to be um, dedicating our lives to a, a lifetime of discipleship and teaching others to do the same so that we can we can transform the world. We can be the leaven that leavens the whole lump and, um, and, ch- and change the world. And so hopefully that's what this new program will do. I hope so. I hope so. I, I'll admit I kind of uh, viewed it as going in the opposite direction, especially considering the timing of the church leaving the scouting program. Um, You know, like I said, it was around the same time that they were becoming more accepting of gay and transgender men and boys. Additionally, the church did immediately respond to the announcement of gay and transgender scoutmasters and other scout leaders as troubling. So I kind of, I'll admit that I kind of viewed this as tr- the, uh, the church trying to control more of the narrative and not being exposed to so much LGBTQ positive experiences. I don't know, but that was kind of what I thought initially when I saw, when I saw the news of this new program. I was like, the church is trying to do something that's going to better prepare people for missions and give them more of a control over what their children learn. But again, that's just me. Um, I just wanted to add real quickly that this is the um, 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And um, one of the things that a number of astronauts have said about it, and when you look at stuff about the space program, you realize this is true, is that they map out every detail like years in advance. They plan everything down to the microsecond and the nearest degree because they have to plan everything out and they – uh, and obviously it doesn't always work out perfectly, but they really, really try to be prepared. And one thing that the that the astronauts have said is is basically is basically that the more you know, the less you fear in terms of uh, like are you afraid when you're in space? And I think the more you have a handle on what's going on and accurate information about your surroundings and your path, then the less you fear. And I would translate that into the church this way, that uh, that the more we know and more we understand about um, people of color, about women, about people with disabilities, about um, LGBTQ folks, uh, the more we know about each of these experiences and each of these populations, the less we will fear. I don't think there's anything to be afraid of, but in the absence of, of that knowledge, people can be very afraid be very afraid of what's different. Alrighty then. Cool, man. And thanks for sharing. So uh, with that, 
Um, if there's no other news, uh, we good to go into the Come Follow Me? Yay, this is my favorite part. As is mine, because uh, this was a fun reading as well. Like, I think I may have enjoyed some parts of this reading more than I did uh, last week's, dare I say. But last week's reading was uh, an incredible one. Again, as a reminder, everybody, we are covering the Come Follow Me, not for the Sunday that these episodes drop, but for the following Sunday. So we are in Acts 1621 today, which will be discussed not even next Sunday, but two Sundays from tomorrow, you know, and today's Saturday. So anyway, Derek, uh, I think I'd better go first again because I only have two things and I know you got some thoughts on X 17. So is that, is that okay with you? Okay. Very good. Yeah. Go first. Excellent. So the two things I have are from X 16 and X 19. So in X 16, this is where we, Oh, hold on. I believe somewhere in here is where we're given the, given the we are the offspring of God uh, doctrine. And I find that a very interesting thing in that we're one of the few Christian religions. I mean, a lot of Christian religions refer to God as their father, but I get the sense that there is a depth missing to that teaching because yeah, uh-huh. we are one of the few, if not one of, if not one of the only that... Uh, teaches that we are destined ultimately to become gods like the only other faith that i know who uh preaches that in any degree is the five percenters the offshoot of islam and um even they don't think that one day we are going to be Mm -hmm. creating our own worlds but rather that because we are the offspring of divinity that we are divine ourselves which is something that again i agree with but this kind of knowledge right here um, you know, the come follow me manual asks a very interesting question that, uh, what does it mean to be the offspring of God and not just one of his creations? And there, are, there are two big things here. One is the element of, yeah. um, of a personal relationship being possible with God, because like we are children of our own parents, we mm-hmm. have a personal relationship with our heavenly parents simply because they are our parents. They are deeply involved and interested in our lives and they want to see us succeed. So they, so we aren't just some, uh, we're not just some spirit animals in a divine giant terrarium. We actually are children of God that he has a right. divine, that he has a, that he has an interest in. So that's uh so that's one thing. And also the second thing, and this is what is so powerful, especially to people on the margins, since we are children of God, all of us, we're all equal. This further fuels this uh, lesson from last week's lesson that uh, God is no respecter of persons. And further, that we're destined to become gods. When you tell a person on the margins that they are destined to become gods, like all kinds of doors open, you know, we have so many more opportunities we have so much more right, hope yes, that's... yeah i mean that was uh that's basically all i wanted to say about that it's yeah, just the so knowledge powerful. that there's divine power in us and that there's a divine destiny for us is one reason why i think mm-hmm. the theology of mormonism probably speaks in greater me- probably speaks louder to folks on the margins yeah, I just want to respond to that with a, a very interesting thing because uh, uh, another sort of application of this of this principle is the difference between something being 
begotten, I guess this is the old word, and something being made or created. So, the, for example, suppose that I build a computer. I, I build a computer, okay? I, I created it. Now, if I wanted to, I could smash the computer. It's mine. I, I made it. It's my, my property. I can, I can smash it. Now, what's the difference between me making a computer and me having a son, right? If I have a son, now it's totally different because I can't, I can't smash the son and destroy the sun like I would the computer because the sun has independent rights. The sun is literally another one of me. I mean, not me as a clone, but another one of my species. It's another human, fully as fully human as I am human. And that's not the same as, that's not true for the computer. I can smash the computer because the computer will never be a human. It does not have the same rights as I do because it's not my offspring. And I think when we talk about us being offspring of God, it actually puts a claim on God because there's there's ways that he has to treat us because we are his offspring. We have certain rights. We were, If we're of the same species as God, that means that we have all the rights, dignity, and privileges and potential that God has. And that changes mm-hmm. um, how God must treat us and what we can expect from God. So we can expect a loving God, a, one who will preserve us and take care of us, and one who is supposed to protect us. We 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 can expect that God will not, um, you know, damage us or throw us away if we were just created beings. Like we we have this idea that we're co-eternal with God, even not co-equal um, at this point, but co-eternal. That there's some spark of us that's uncreated, um, and that not even God can can deny. Um, and that gets back to this idea of us being literally children of God, which other Christian churches use that word, but they don't mean it really seriously because, uh, let's take a look at the notion of a puppy. A puppy is a, is the offspring of a dog and a kitten is the offspring of a cat. But what that means is a puppy is not, is a juvenile dog that's going to become an adult dog one day and a kitten is nothing but a juvenile cat that's going to become a cat, an adult cat one day. And all these Christians, all these other Christians go around saying that we're children of God. But if puppies grow up to be dogs, what do the children of God grow up to be? They don't actually make that leap. And I think that's so profound that we actually take it seriously. Um, And that also, as you said, is such a great advantage for marginalized people because that means uh, everything. It means everything. Everything that God is and has is something that God wants for us. I just think that's so beautiful. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for sharing. Love the way you put that. There is, um, actually, if there's no other thoughts on that, I'm going to move on to the second uh, insight I gained from Acts 19. And... I am actually going to be going to verses 13 through 20. This little pericope, new word I learned, is about the uh, sons of Siva. Am I saying that right, Derek? Sons of Siva? Yes, yes. And I'm, I'm glad you pronounced pericope correctly, too. Yeah, about to say, I've been saying pericope for like 10 years, so glad we are on the same page. But anyway, this is 
This is Acts 19, verses 13 through about 20, and we're talking about the sons of Siva. And let me tell you, man, I like felt some things as I read this. So just as a little background, this particular story teaches us the necessity of proper priesthood authority, among other things. So Paul, he's been out here healing the sick and casting out devils and performing all kinds of miracles for a while. And I assume that the sons of Siva were rather impressed by Paul's exploits because, you know, Paul's out here just sending out, you know, handkerchiefs and stuff and aprons, healing people with the stuff. And um, sons of Siva, who are pretty much, they're described as vagabond Jews, so probably also religious charlatans. They're going to go out and they're going to try to cast out demons too while name dropping Paul and Jesus. So verse, uh, what verse is this? 12 or 13. I should have my scriptures open, but I don't. But the words uh, written here, we adjure you. This is the sons of Siva coming up to a man possessed by an evil spirit. They say to him, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And the next words come from the evil spirit in the man's body. And he's saying, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? Yo, dude, I was, I was like experiencing yeah. so much secondhand yeah. fear on behalf of the sons of Siva. And that was before I read what comes next. So like the next uh, thing that happens is the possessed man beats up the seven sons of Siva so badly that they leave naked and wounded. So, you know, there's a couple things. Oh, actually, one more thing worth noting here is that uh, the verse 20, the end of this account, we see the stark difference between the actual power of Christ and the impotence of pretenders leads to the spreading of the gospel throughout the whole land. So that's how this particular story ends. Now, there are a couple of things that are worth noting in this story. Now, one thing is that demons are really strong, like, or the sons of Siva are really weak. I don't know what it is, but I don't know how one dude beats up seven dudes so badly that they all leave naked and wounded. So demons are not to be trifled with is what I gained from this. Like, and they, and the sons of Siva clearly had no respect for evil spirits and stuff. So, uh, I mean, that's kind of beside the point, but one of the bigger things is that they didn't know who they were dealing with, not the demon. And they certainly didn't know Christ. In fact, they seem to reveal as much in their initial adjuration. So you see their initial appeal. They appeal to Jesus whom Paul preaches as if a mere human can somehow add to Jesus's power. And in doing so, they reveal that their exorcism is intended more as a parody than anything serious. But even if we don't want to humor that idea, which is understandable given that the sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, are probably religious themselves, there's still a more important lesson to learn here. So the more important lesson is that the sons of Siva were not followers of Christ, let alone apostles. And the authority to cast out demons, that belongs to Jesus Christ and those he gave authority to. So this is why the demon knows Jesus and Paul, but not the sons of Siva. One more thing that right. is probably right. w yeah. worth mentioning is that the sons of Siva, they still invoked Jesus's name and had no success. Like we see this lesson in other parts of scripture 
where right. there are people who are trying to invoke Jesus's name as why they deserve to get into heaven. But Jesus is still like, I never knew you depart from me, ye who work iniquity. But anyway, this should further teach us that even if we invoke Jesus's name, there's no power or safety in that alone. Again, they had no relationship yeah, with really Christ and they were not yeah. believers. So as a consequence, they did not have power of the Holy Ghost and there was no reason for this demon to be scared of them. They essentially picked a fu- Yeah, like there was essentially no reason for the demon to be scared of them. They, they picked a fight with a much bigger dude by mocking him in front of a, bu- in front of a bunch of people. And of course, they got the hell beat out of them. Like even evil spirits got to preserve their clout. So I suppose in summation, the authority to act in God's name is very necessary. So we learn about priesthood authority here, the necessity of having it to perform miracles among many other things, and the necessity of having a relationship with Christ in order to invoke his name in the things we do, whether that's casting out devils, healing the sick, performing ordinances, or anything else. I think that really uh, gets to the point of of your point about using Jesus's name. You can't just slap Jesus's name on something, and and think that you're right. Um, and that can happen even if you do have priesthood authority as well, because there's going to be people surprised in the end. Um, because if you if you don't have the, the the kind of life that can command priesthood power, the authority that you have won't help anyone in the end. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to do is um, read Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. And I'm going to read it uh, just for some variety in the New English translation, uh, just because some of the King James can be a little bit uh, confusing or stilted. And having a fresh uh, translation really helps a lot. So here's what it says. The brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea at once during the night. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they eagerly received the message, examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with quite a few prominent Greek women and men. So there's several things I wanted to say here. First of all is, uh, this is contrasted with the reception that Paul and Silas had in Thessalonica, which was not very good. There were a few believers, um, but overall they were mainly rejected. Now, the, uh, the Jews in Berea listened to uh, uh, Paul and Silas and it's very interesting what they did is that they cross-checked what they were saying with the scriptures okay and I want to bring this point out is that here you have uh, people who have the authority sent from God um, the Apostle Paul and Silas as well and still the people who are God's covenant people already you know these are these are Jews these are God's covenant people. So God sends prophets and apostles to God's covenant people, and they still cross-checked their words against the scriptures, which I think is a very, very important uh, principle to note today, um, that we also should compare the words of our prophets and apostles with the scriptures. 
and see if these things are so. Um, and I think the, the importance of holding our leaders accountable is very, very important for us to be a living and healthy church, um, the same as it was in the New Testament period. Um, what, I, what I wanted to do is bring up this uh, address from the year 1907, uh, and here's, here's, how it, here's what, it, uh, what it says. So let's talk a little bit about what this address is. This was at the time of uh, the Reed-Smoot hearings in the country. Um, so Reed-Smoot was a, um, an apostle at the time, an LDS apostle, and was elected to be the senator from, uh, from Utah. But they had issues seating him in the Senate because they didn't want a Mormon to be uh, in the Senate. And there were so many fears. Remember, this is 1907. The church is still dealing with uh, the reputation of polygamy, which is, was not that far away. Um, they were still dealing with things like the uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre. There was a lot of anti-Mormon prejudice in the United States. And, um, and yeah, so Smoot was here. And so in response to this, the first presidency at the time, which was Joseph F. Smith was the president, uh, gave this address, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to the world in 1907. And here's what this address says in part. It says, the church officers in the exercise of their functions are answerable to the church. No officer, however exalted his position, is exempt from this law. All decisions, rulings, and conduct of, officer, of officials are subject to investigation, correction, revision, and final rejection by the General Assembly of the Priesthood of the Church, its final court its final court of appeal. Even the president, the highest officer, is subject to these laws, and special provision is made for his trial and, if necessary, his deposition. Where these facts exist in any administration of government, it cannot be justly classed as a tyranny, nor considered a menace to free institutions. Now the whole point behind this is to basically say to the rest of the American public, that our prophet is not a dictator. Our prophet is not a tyrant. Our prophet doesn't have absolute authority. Uh, there are checks and balances. Doctrine and Covenants section 107 even provides for the removal for a process for convening the common council of the church and removing a president of the church uh, if necessary. So we don't believe that our prophets have absolute power. Uh, they are uh, they are subject to a sustaining vote. They are also subject to our ability uh, to to hold them accountable. I love how it starts out by saying the church officers in the exercise of their functions. So it's not even just if they have a private sin, you know. It's even if they make a mistake in the capacity of their of their office. They are answerable to the church, and the church is us. All of us. We are the church. The church collectively um, 
has the right and ability in a, in a loving way and in a healthy way to hold our leaders accountable. Um, and this doc and this position from 1907 has never been repealed. Now we haven't ever used that. In fact, we've only convened a common council of the church, uh, to try a member of the first presidency twice. I think, um, Joseph Smith in 1834 and Sidney Rigdon in 1844 and Sidney Rigdon was, um, excommunicated for apostasy. So yes, we have excommunicated members of the first presidency, or at least one we have executed, uh, not executed. We have excommunicated one member of the first presidency. We have excommunicated members of the quorum of the 12 apostles. Uh, we have excommunicated members of the 70 people at all levels of the church are accountable and can be uh, guilty of apostasy. So we have to not hold our prophets in a stance of idolatry of, oh, we look to them when, when we should be looking to God um, and letting them take the place that only God should have in our heart. What's interesting about this is the how, how Acts chapter 17 narrates uh, the consequences. So, the, so the, the people in Berea had faith and they had open-mindedness um, in order to latch on to the to the message of, of the gospel. But what that does is, uh, I want to connect that with the fact that women were listed first in those who received the gospel in Berea. And not only that, but also in Thessalonica, in Acts uh, 17 verse 4, women are listed. And you have, of course, uh, Lydia in Acts 16 verse 14 um, Lydia in Philippi is very prominently as the head of her household she is narrated as the head of her household she is um, is 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 noted uh, and we should uh, we should note that that women are essential to the propagation of the gospel and not just essential but central in a way Um we see that the gospel moves on the margins, and uh, and uh, and and that's what Acts narrates. So then, the next thing I wanted to do was talk about Paul's speech uh, later in Acts seventeen verses twenty two through thirty. This is uh, his speech at the Areopagus, the Mars Hill speech, and basically what I wanted to say about this was. Uh, this is in Athens, and so he is a missionary, and he's doing some cross-cultural work. And what I find so inspiring about what he's doing is that he meets people where they are. He uses languages and terms that they can understand. He quotes from their poets. Um, he engages their philosophy. He even um, points to an altar that's there that's inscribed to the unknown god and says this unknown god... Uh, I now declare to you. And I find that very, very empowering. Um, so he quotes in verses, in verse 28, he quotes um, Epimenides and then Eratus. And um, th those quotations are, in him we live and move and have our being, and then for we are indeed his offspring. And in their historical context, these would have been referring to Zeus, the uh, patriarch of the Greek pantheon. 
but he's able to graft what he's trying to say onto what they already know. And let me think about what I find powerful about that. And so what I like about that is that he doesn't it this is another example of him meeting people on their own terms. And I think that's really powerful for marginalized peoples in our society. And what's interesting about our church compared to other churches is that other churches have a very well-defined systematic theology. Uh, they have their doctrine all outlined in one uh, complete, harmonized whole, uh, you know, like the Catechism of the Catholic Church, for example. But And so these other churches attempt to convert people to a standard theology that they have previously articulated, right? But our church is almost backwards. We actually articulate our theology in advance in an attempt to convert people. And I think that's very interesting because part of that articulating our theology is um, an advancement of our theology. Like we're in a position that if we encounter a new situation, we can ask the Lord for revelation and then and then actually expand our theology in an attempt to be uh, effective as missionaries and spread the gospel to a world with with different facets and different particularities and, and new situations. And I think the 1978 revelation is an example of that because at this point we were spreading into Brazil and to some extent Africa. We had a few people in Africa um, come to a knowledge of the truth of the restored gospel and then and then we had a large number of converts in Brazil and I think the the, pro the realize oh look we're opening up these new mission fields when you look at official declaration 2 that's one of the things they list is the missionary work uh, as a prompting of, of, of asking these questions about uh, the priesthood and temple ban and so that's that's kind of what I like about where Paul is going here, he's using language that they can understand, and he's in articulating his theology on the fly as a way of reaching these people. Because we have to remember, at the point that Paul was speaking, none of the New Testament had been written. There is no Christian theology um, in the first century other than what they were what they were saying uh, in the moment to the particular circumstances that exist. And so that's really, I think, what makes us the restored first century church is we have the power to do the same thing of, oh, look, we get to... It's not. I'm not saying we're making it up on the fly because that's not fair to what's going on. What it is is we're prompted by real-world situations to articulate our theology in light of new circumstances, in light of new peoples. And I think that's really powerful as we expand into um, LGBT individuals and how that will cause our theology to shift in its articulation and presentation. I'm okay. Forgive me if I didn't catch everything, but being that the general theme of what I'm catching is that we are able to receive additional revelation based on changing circumstances, and this kind of goes. Uh, back to what we talked about either last week or the week before. I I think that um, 
this is an important thought for us as Latter-day Saints to always remember. And I was thinking about this as we talked about this whole situation with Mutual uh, last week. Um, I actually sent them a letter today because, you know, I, I didn't think there was anything to lose by them implementing a male seeking male or female seeking female option on their app simply because, you know, we had this idea or this tradition that only heterosexual marriage is acceptable even for a dating relationship. So I'm, I'm coming at this as somebody who is regularly accustomed to looking at the scriptures with fresh eyes as new information becomes available and I, I feel like the church has lost that a little bit, especially seeing as how we've had to do just that pretty much for the whole initial existence of the of the early church, of the church from like 1830 to 1850s or so. We were always seeking new revelation. We were always seeking new wisdom as situations and circumstances changed. So I'm of the opinion that's what the church is intended to be, seeing as how there's a precedent for it in the latter days and there's a precedent for it in ancient scripture. I'm not exactly sure how we get back to that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really not, but I do think you're totally on base there with this idea of what a true and living church actually looks like. A living church has to be able to change and evolve as uh, situations and circumstances change for the church. Yeah, my one thought about how we get back to that is to realize that converts are fresh blood. Okay. And every convert uh, brings in a wealth of treasure. And you let's let's go back. You're talking about the 1830s and 40s. They were all converts, right? They all came from another tradition and chose to become Latter-day Saints, bringing with them a whole host of questions and experiences and assumptions and gifts. Because they had, you know, biblical training in another church, or they had other other things that they had, um, and so I would love to uh, for us to maximize our use of converts in the church. I wonder. I should figure this out. How many of our general authorities are converts, and how many of them are raised in the church? Because, um, like you were saying about mutual, we have a lot of traditions of our fathers in the church things that we've just assumed and accepted and inherited, but actually aren't revealed knowledge at all. And what I, I want to bring this back to Acts uh, and, and this, this sense of, of what Paul's doing here is this gospel liberates people. I want to go back to the, um, to the, to the enslaved girl in Acts 16, verses 16 through 20. So we have... Um, the power of of God liberating this girl from demon possession and then her um, masters now are deprived of their economic resource and that's actually what gets the um, gets Paul in trouble there but I think it's really powerful that the gospel is liberating of people not just spiritually but um, in a sense of wholeness your body and soul all together we can't care about the, the soul without caring about the body as well, especially if we believe in the resurrection and take that seriously. I'm reminded of what, um, I think it's in James chapter 2, uh, says that basically the same thing, that you can't care about someone's soul 
and then just ignore their bodily needs and think you're okay. Faith without works is dead. Um, so that's kind of all mm. I had to say about um, Acts 17. But I think it's just really beautiful how he weaves together his knowledge of the Athenians. He talks to the uh, Stoics, or he's in the context of the Epicureans and the Stoics, and he's familiar with their writings. And he, I love what he talks, how he talks about God here, um, that the God that we serve is not made by human hands, and nor is uh, is found in temples built by human hands. And here, of course, you've got a context where you had temples built to the, the Greek gods. And he's saying, no, our God isn't anything like that. Our God is our father. You know, we are his offspring. And I love this in verse 26 that, that God made from, uh, I, I think the King James has one blood, but other manuscripts are just have uh, one man that, that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, which this should really blow away uh, any kind of racism. Um, you know, now I, I do want to acknowledge the fact that we can't say, well, we're all one and then ignore any race, the experiences that are different. Uh, and we don't want to just pretend that we're colorblind. We want to acknowledge that there are these different experiences and different uh, advantages and disadvantages, but we we also want to say that a lot of this is culturally and socially constructed. That we're not biologically a different species at all. We're we're really on one level, all one family, uh, and we have it. We're a family with diversity, and we should remember that. So we need to. Um... Well, I'll save that thought for later because it's kind of tied into the prayer role. But uh, do you have any other thoughts on Acts 16 through 21? No, I don't have anything more uh, for, for, the, for the Come Follow Me. Okay, nothing else for Come Follow Me. Then let us move on to the prayer role. And I think you and I have something similar here. Uh, what are you putting down, Derek? Well, um, we had the occupant of the White House um, make a very inflammatory and racist comment about four of our uh, women of color serving in the House of Representatives. And I hate to say, well, we can expect that from Trump. But what's interesting is, for my prayer role, it's not so much Trump, but sort of what it tells us about our family and friends around us who look at that and ask well why is that racist or what's the problem with that or it wasn't really racist you know and I'm just thinking about that and this idea of, of saying go back to your own country uh, he didn't say that to any of the white immigrants who are in the House of Representatives who have also condemned him he, he just said it to four women of color um, who three of them were born natural born citizens and one of them is an um, a naturalized uh, citizen and this idea that they're not real Americans I think is, is the heart of the problem for me uh, when people claim that oh 
Uh, okay. Well, if you don't like it, you can go back to your country and and fix it, and and you know, uh, that just doesn't isn't isn't at all appropriate for someone who represents our country to say. I was just gonna say I was going to, I I kept like hearing that particular phrase, send her back. Like it it just kept reminding me of what what they're really communicating. It's it's a timeless and indestructible pillar on you know what this country was built. Like the the idea of sending someone back, particularly black and brown bodies as if we're defective Amazon packages is pretty disgusting. And but it makes sense when you consider that an overwhelming majority of the founding fathers were slave owners, you know, and even as, you know, the the founding member of the GOP, Abraham Lincoln, he even proposed sending uh, black people, like repatriating us back to Haiti and Panama or just anywhere other than America. So, like, th- this whole idea of sending people back, this isn't a new thing. This is This is white supremacy at work and we've always been founded on this idea yeah and i think it's very um uh just from a a constitutional perspective very very problematic to try to even suggest deporting american citizens once you've gone that far you are in literal fascist territory deporting people based on their identity or based on their views who are American citizens is not at all what being a free country should be. Um, And this gets back to part of Trump's problem with these four um, is, is that they criticize his administration and his values. And what we have to remember is that criticism of the government is sacred in our in our constitution and in our culture part of part of the reason why we went to all that work to declare independence from great britain is be, is because of this per, this particular right like we in order to have a healthy government we need to be able to criticize it we need to be able to improve it we need to be able to have checks and balances if you can't speak out you have tyranny and and Trump is trying to prevent people from being able to speak out um, by doing whatever he can to delegitimize what they're saying. And I think that that's quite, quite scary. Um, yeah, I just, I just don't know how to articulate the depths of, of the problematic nature of what's been, what's been going on and what he's doing here. Um, this well, what I can do is it reminds me of uh, a theologian named Paul Tillich. He uh, is a for those of you who don't know, he is a very well known and very influential twentieth century existential um, uh, theologian. He was uh, had a very big impact in mainline Protestantism. He was a Lutheran, um, and he wrote and that's this is one of the things i was reading this past week 
is he wrote a number of wartime um, radio broadcasts that he um, he uh, wrote, and they were they were broadcast by shortwave radio from England into Germany uh, in from 1942 to 1944. And I just think, wow, that's a really subversive thing. Uh, broadcasting these these messages from a leading theologian, uh, he was he was very very well known around the world at that time. Uh, to the heart of Germany in German, trying to influence the German people. Um, and I've been reading these, and it's it's really interesting uh, how passionately he speaks out. And p part of what I'm wanting to do is connect this idea about uh, what it means to be an American. Um, and whether because Trump says that these 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 four um, amazing women hate America, and they don't hate America. What they do is uh, they they're criticizing particular policies and values that they find tremendously problematic, and that's and then by by delegitimizing that as hating America, he's he's really crossing a major line. I, I mean, hate, that's not news. He's crossed a lot of lines. But let me just quote from uh, one of uh, Paul Tillich's uh, speeches. This is March 7th, 1944. The Nazis are, um, are uh, yeah, are, are basically on their way to losing uh, at this point. And, he, and here's, what it, here's what Paul Tillich says. He says, We've spoken of the betrayal of the great traditions of the German people that the Nazis have committed. The betrayal of Middle Age chivalry, of the Christian idea of love, of the freedom of conscience of the Reformation, of the universality of the German classical poets and philosophers, and of the humanism of all great Germans. We have challenged you to recover all of this and much more that is reviled, distorted, and buried by the Nazis. He goes on to say, No future is possible for Germany if the German people do not spiritually separate themselves from the corruptors of the best German legacy. And then he says, Every word of mine that comes across the ocean to you concerns the foundations of a future Germany. The intent of these speeches is not to destroy, but to build up. They are spoken for Germany. Uh, they are spoken for Germany, not against Germany. For a Germany that can live freed of its corruptors and freed of the spirit of corruption that they have brought over the German people. So now Tillich wasn't anti-German, and you know he he was German. He he um he was German until the Nazis. Well, he was he, uh, he lived in Germany until the Nazis uh, gained power in 1933, and he was dismissed from his teaching post and ended up in America. But he he didn't hate Germany. Now he said, "Now I love Germany, uh, but I hate what the Nazis are standing for." And those are two very different things. And what he's trying to do is appeal to the best of the German tradition. Like he lists all of these things that should be expansive and generous in the German heritage and says all this has been distorted by the Nazis. And people, I think, are going to get uncomfortable when, when we compare anything that's going on in America with the Nazis. But we have to remember that the Nazis weren't like some exceptional 
um, different kind of person. I mean, they were people too. They were a political party that achieved dominance and does what people do when they uh, gain measures of power is, is they pursue unrighteous dominion. And and uh, this idea that we couldn't do the same is to put the Nazis in some untouchable different boat, and they weren't. Um, so that's kind of my point about about what Tilk is going with, going for is is you don't just because you criticize a government doesn't mean that you don't love it, and and in the American context it means you do love it that you want it to be better. And uh, yeah, and I think. I think they that the people who speak out against the occupant of the White House really have America at the best. And this isn't just a political problem. It's a theological problem, as, as Tillich ends up speaking throughout all of his uh, things. So that's kind of one of the blessings of being a theologian is you get to read really interesting things from the past. So that's all I have from, for, for that. I don't know what you, comments you have now. Uh, the remaining comments that I have actually have to do with the opposite side of that coin uh, with regard to those who love America being critical of it, which would make those of those like 45 and his ilk uh, the most un-American of all. And I want to first say that despite Trump's hatred for John McCain, he never insinuated that McCain should be sent back to you know, the Panama Canal Zone where he was born. When Trump fought with Romney, he made no mention that Romney's parents and grandparents are from Mexico. You know, uh-huh. his right. other attacks on Justin Amash. He didn't cite his Syrian and Palestinian heritage when he bumped heads with that guy. Like Trump and his followers, they don't think of Ivanka or Eric or Barron or, you know, Trump Jr. as not Americans, even though all four are the children of immigrants. Um yeah. You know, this is because 45 and his ilk, they just think that this country belongs to them and that everyone else, meaning non-whites, non-Christians, and people who use more than a pinch of salt, that they're not the real Americans, you know, <laughs> because of this. Yeah. They have the authority to do to us what they will, including the right to lynch, segregate, disenfranchise, miseducate, and if they so choose, send us back. Like, this is why they are the most un-American of all. Like, at the heart of their belief is their willingness to disregard the Constitution, the law, the history, and everything that they believe makes their country the greatest place on Earth. They don't truly believe all men are created equal, that Americans have freedom of religion, or that there should be liberty and justice for all. Like... To, to them, right. there's only one right. thing more important than their country, their flag, and their idea of America, and that's their whiteness. You know, that's that that's not really new. That's the way it's always been, as I've said before. Like, there's no difference between the slave owners, the Confederates, uh, the Know Nothing Party, the Klansmen. They're, they're all they're all white supremacists, like all of them. So, yeah, that's the I, most American thing of all. And I think. That reminds me of two things. I remember John McCain and Obama and how uh, someone, I can't remember who it was, some, some woman told McCain at some, fa- at some event that Obama was a terrorist and a foreigner and a bad man and a, and a whatever. And McCain said, no ma'am, he is a good man. We disagree on policy, but all those things that you're saying about him are not true. His he's a good Christian man, 
you know, and he's not a terrorist. He's not a foreigner. He's not a whatever. I can't remember the quote exactly, but I think we've come a long way in the wrong direction from where McCain was the face of of one of the Republican Party, and now it's Trump. I wish we had someone like McCain again. You know, <laughs> uh, because what 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 Trump has done is now really dirtied the Republican Party, which I think we're all worse off for. Not just the Republicans, but we as mm. a country are worse off. I, I I would love to have good, honest, uh, well-meaning Republicans, you know, trying to do what's best for America. Um, but that's not what we have, and and that gets back to what Tillich said is before I read Tillich's writings here, um, which I had never read before. I've read his his more theological writings about faith and systematic theology, but I've never read his, his more political writings here. I thought that the that the Nazis loved Germany. I thought that's I thought that they were nationalists who just got confused and ran it too far and, and had the wrong priorities and but now that I'm realizing it, they they're such they had such a discontinuity of what what Germany had been and and um, the Enlightenment in Germany, the Reformation in Germany, all of these other movements in Germany that civilize and universalize and uh, and make and make make Germany what it was. They actually went the other direction. So so when you look at Hitler's idea of making Germany great again. Uh, it's completely uh, satanic and deceptive and completely upside down um, because he wanted to to get Germany back to an economic and military powerhouse and that's what he meant by make Germany great again uh, and he uh, sadly did uh, uh, make some success successful uh, moves in that direction but but that's not what made germany great um what made germany great is all the the treasures that it offered the world and that's the the, the thing that uh hitler and the nazis messed up just to tie this back into um you know who exactly i'm putting on the prayer roll there the people that have been silent or the people who have been you know otherwise complicit in this rhetoric, especially the saints, I have a huge problem with that. Right. Like so It's been said many times, silence is violence, and we need to have, we need to be more active in condemning this kind of rhetoric. Certain of the white saints don't feel like they have to say anything because their existence isn't directly threatened by 45's rhetoric just yet. Like It's going to get there, but for the time being, they're all chilling. And the silence, especially from members of the members of the faith, is just entirely too disturbing, especially when we've made covenants to not allow this kind of thing to happen and to condemn this kind of thing. I want to see more of that from the saints because I know there's a decent amount of us uh, believing folk who condemn this kind of rhetoric. But unfortunately... Unfortunately, when Christians don't stand up and condemn this rhetoric, it turns out that we do more damage to the cause of Christianity or do more 
damage to the faith than atheists ever could. Like I'm seeing, we're seeing a tremendous amount of hypocrisy right now, mm -hmm. just right. in the, just in the um, general silence and otherwise complicity of the saints watching this whole thing happen and us not so much as saying that's wrong or that's bad. We, we need more people of our faith standing up and condemning this rhetoric. And I really need to see more of the saints doing mm -hmm. it, but we're not seeing enough of that perhaps because since 45's presidency and his campaigns were all predicated primarily on white supremacy, they don't necessarily feel affected by it or feel offended by it. But God forbid anyone says anything harmful about Mormons. Anybody comes after Mormons, you're going to see all kinds of believing members of the faith posting on their social medias about how hurtful these comments were or how being called a Mormon by a major publication is akin to hearing the N-word if you're a black person. Just that's the kind of hyperbole we're engaged in right now where we are more, where we are straining at a net and not, you know condemning this giant elephant in the room that is a right. literal embodiment of everything that we should be condemning mm -hmm. sitting mm -hmm. right in the White House. So all those people, anybody who is silent, anybody who is complicit, anybody who is even in support of what is happening right now, they all need prayers. That's yeah, all I gotta and say. That, reminds, that reminds me of this quote. I forgot who said it. But someone said, um, sometimes you have to speak out, not because what you say will change the other person, but you have to speak out because if you don't speak out, that person will have changed you. Mm. And I think that's, that's, that's almost in line with, with what Tillich is talking about, because a lot of what he's doing is saying, not only... Um, do you need to be liberated from the Nazis militarily, right? Because they were losing the war at this point in 1944. Right. But he said you're going to have to not just you're you're going to have to wait for that liberation, but you're also going to have to liberate your spirit from all this Nazi ideology and get it out of your system, or else. He actually warns. He says if you don't do this, it will come back. He says this ideology will go underground and it will come back. He said this already in 1944. And and he's right. <laughs> um, it's coming back. Yep, it is coming back. Or it's been back, I should say. It's been back. Like it, it, it just has mutated. And obviously, I'm not trying to um, negate the the specifics of the horrors of the Nazi atrocities. Obviously, that's not where we are. Right. But part of Tillich's point is that he was resisting them since 1933 before. It was bad. I mean, before it was as bad as it ended up being. And that's my point here. If you don't speak out early, you won't be able to speak out at all uh, if you let it go too late. And we see such significant uh, dangers in what's happening that we have to speak out now. Um, well, we, yeah, we have to speak out now. That We just have no option. This, this is not normal. This is not business as usual. This is something perversely different in our American culture. Yes, we've, we've had you know, a lot of problems all along, but at least we had you know, checks and balances um, and other ways. We had 
we had things in place. Now those fundamental mechanics of our democracy are being chipped away. Um, and we, sh we should definitely pray for all of us in this country, I guess. Indeed. Indeed. So that's all I have. If that is all we got, um, I don't have any immediate announcements, at least not for a little bit anyway. You and I will have to talk about a few things, but uh, that about, I think that is going to wrap the show, man. Do you have anything? No, just to remind all the listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. Um, share this with specific people that you know will appreciate it and, and get benefit from it, and uh, you can do your part in uh, spreading the good news. Thank you. That'll wrap up this week's episode of Beyond the Block. We will see you guys next week. See you next week. Bye.